Today, we take you to Bristol in the southwest of the United Kingdom, talking to possibly the most exciting company in the UK that most people haven't heard of. Backed by Silicon Valley Sequoia, the same venture capitalist behind Apple, Google, Instagram, and Zoom, this company is set to reshape our future. Meet Nigel Two, the man behind Graphcore, who are revolutionizing the hardware chip industry. That's kind of been my career because I've been in the middle of this semiconductor revolution and it's amazing when your whole company fits in a car and you can take the whole company to go and see a customer. With offices in Beijing, Palo Alto, Oslo and Cambridge, Nigel's team is pushing boundaries. What's really interesting in this episode is Nigel's past successes and how the Prince of Wales played an unexpected role in connecting him with his co-founders. It was through the Prince's Trust. The joke always was that the Prince of Wales introduced us. In this episode, Nigel discusses what technology powers our phones and computers, the impact of boundary-crossing skills, and how World War II shaped the development of the jet engine. On to today's show. Welcome to today's show, Nigel. I just wanted to start off with a couple of quick-fire questions. What was the work experience that you undertook at school and what was your first paid job? Gosh, work experience at school. I was very lucky, actually. My father was an electronics engineer and at a certain point he had his own business. So my first job was actually soldering circuit boards and doing electronics work. And that's really what got me the bug to then go on and study electronics at university. I think when I was 14, I was working on circuit boards and doing you know, various kind of assembly of electronics equipment. It was quite a lot of fun. It's interesting how many people end up following their parents' careers. Those first steps are quite important, I find. So could you explain to us the story of how you came to found Graphcore? And obviously you've been an entrepreneur a number of times, and it'd be great to hear about those stories as well, which led to you founding Graphcore. Yeah. So I guess after university, I went, like most people, off to be an engineer working on different projects. I moved into what was called a field applications engineering role, which was sort of helping people understand how technology works and, you know, making it work in their applications. I ended up working for a, what at the time was a very small uh, US Silicon Valley based chip company, a company called Altira. And I joined them and about six months after I joined, they went public on the NASDAQ stock exchange. I joined, there was about 130 people in the company. 14 years later, when I left, I was running the European business, which was about 25% of the company. The company had grown to $2 billion of sales, was worth about $20 billion on the NASDAQ stock exchange. So that was a very formative period of my career, you know, seeing how a technology company grows and scales and, you know, all the challenges and operating in a company that's listed on the stock exchange and living your life in those 90 day periods. It was just a sort of a fascinating growing up experience. I ended up in senior positions at a young age, ended up managing lots of people at a young age, did lots of things wrong, but luckily had some very good mentors and help and, and learn just a huge amount through that experience. It was really having seen that had spent a little bit of time in the US, but never actually moved there. I think I worked out once I've spent five years of my life in Silicon Valley and never lived there. It's not the most amazing place to live, is it? Though, <laughs> to be well, I like the UK. I like the warm beer and stuff like that. So it was that experience that really said, gosh, we should be able to do that type of thing here in the UK. We've got the 
talent and the venture community was growing. And so the capital was starting to be available. And so together with four other people, we started a business called ICIRA, which developed a new kind of processor that went into mobile phones to support 2G, 3G, and then ultimately 4G networking communications. And it was a very innovative and the company grew. We got to about $70 million in sales. We were making great progress, very competitive against a big US company called Qualcomm. Then the 2008 financial crisis hit. The funding side became a bit harder and we ended up thinking that the right thing to do for the business was actually to sell and combine the business with a larger business. And we had a couple of offers, one of which was from NVIDIA, and we ended up selling the business. But again, that was another huge learning experience, you know, having founded a company. It's amazing when your whole company fits in a car and you can take the whole company to go and see a customer. It's a quite an interesting experience. You know, that business grew to 300 people and scaled very well. But it really sort of taught you that it's about talent and it's also about access to capital are really the things that allow you to build significant businesses. And it was really those formative experiences that then has led to GraphCore. How did you, just quickly before we come on to the story of GraphCore, how did you meet those four people that you were in the car with? Well, we always joke that the Prince of Wales introduced us. And I'll explain that because I was <laughs> I was working at Altera. I was approached by the Prince's Trust, who was setting up at the time what's called the Technology Leadership Group, which went on to raise about 10 million pounds for the Prince's Trust and engaged tech companies to help mentor young disadvantaged people. And that was very rewarding, but it was through the Prince's Trust that I met first Dan Boland and then Simon Knowles, and we ended up forming ICERA together. So the joke always was that the Prince of Wales introduced us. Shows the convening power of the royal family and the government. <laughs> so just on GraphCore, can you, because I always describe it as probably the best business you've never heard of, because it's almost creating the rails, the Monday rails, the hardware that you're creating is involved in so many of the products and things that we use, but people just won't have come across it necessarily. So can you explain to us what the company does? Yeah, of course. My pat phrase here, and I'll trot it out again. For 75 years, we've told computers what to do step by step in a program, and now they're starting to learn from data. And that just makes a huge difference in terms of how microprocessors need to work to be able to support that very different approach to what can become intelligent machines will actually operate. And it's really that change that is at the root of GraphCore. We saw this trend happening. We were able to meet with many of the leading innovators who are working on some of these new AI breakthroughs from our experience in developing microprocessors, and particularly Simon Knowles, my co-founder at his background. We were able to see how you could construct a different type of microprocessor that would be suited to these new workloads, and in particular, the data structures that go on inside AI. And that ends up being fairly fundamental, we would hope, because AI will become a very, very very significant feature of how the internet works, applications in the internet work, how back office automation works in banks. You can't write a program to tell a car how to navigate across London, but we might be able to teach an intelligent system how to do that. It's a big challenge, but we might be able to do that. But it's going to take different types of processes and different computing approaches to really make that happen. And so, you know, that is what we are doing at GraphCore. We're building that processor in the compute systems that going to allow these innovators to make the next breakthroughs in AI. And that's one of the interesting 
aspects of what you're doing at Graphcore that I found when working at Downing Street and so on, we'd often get the line that, you know, we don't build things anymore. And actually you are building something because you're building the chips that make this happen. It's just incredibly high end. And I see you've launched another new chip within the last year, the GC200. What do you think the impact of that can be? Because there's lots of talk about AI and the possibilities that it can change, but so few people actually really know what they're talking about when it comes to it. What do you see the impact of the next few years being? I think it is both overblown, but also underestimated. And let me, let me try and qualify that. I think there's lots of talk about, you know, how AI will change people's work environments, maybe replace people in different kind of work, et cetera. And that may happen. There was a time when there were lift operators who would make the lifts go up and down. We don't see many of those anymore. It's interesting, you know, in accounting, you know, people used to use paper and pencils to create spreadsheets, but now we have personal computers that do that. What's interesting is there's more people involved in accounting since the introduction of that tool than used to be employed with the paper and pencil approaches. So sometimes tools can actually help and create new opportunities, and sometimes they will replace what are dull and tedious work. And I think, you know, AI just is the same, but slightly on steroids in terms of what it will be able to do. It will allow us to solve problems that we couldn't solve. You know, look at some of the things that DeepMind has been doing recently with their AlphaFold algorithms and approaches, where they've been able to work out how proteins fold. And that sounds very obscure, but think about a cancer cell and trying to deliver a drug to that cancer cell. A protein, if you can fold it in the right way, will attach to the cancer cell. It will engage with the receptors in the cancer cell. And then you stick a drug on the back of that protein and it will deliver that drug straight into the cancer cell. No side effect and we'll kill it. Because cancer was this sort of cover-all term, there are many different types of cancer cells. You need lots of different types of proteins and foldings to be able to make that work. And AI may allow us to solve those kinds of problems and conventional computing approaches would just never allow that. It's extraordinary to think about the potential impacts of it. And obviously there's a lot of people and some of the big technology companies rushing into the space as well. I mean, do you consider them customers or do you consider them rivals? Oh, no, they're, they're customers. Again, thinking that through, take something like search on the internet. That's fundamentally a machine learning problem. It's an AI problem. And so it's almost existential to some of these big tech companies. If they don't do it and somebody else does, their business could be replaced even though they're massive and seem impenetrable. And so that's why these companies are rushing to adopt AI, because they see that this just transforms their business. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think there's so many other industries, banking, healthcare, as we talked about, both in drug discovery, but also in diagnostics, automotive, you know, the idea of driver aids and ultimately autonomous vehicles, both for people and for commercial vehicles and trains and, you know, all of these pieces of technology as well. When you talk about the future, I know that you're very much a, a techno-optimist in many interviews before you've referenced the case of a caveman bringing back a dog for the first time and somebody <laughs> said, that's going to, that's going to eat me and you know, all that's going to take my job, etc." And these are challenges that we've just faced throughout the years. I've thought about this as well as how you 
educate people in using those tools. And you've seen this, like even with the internet over the last 15 years, you've had this huge democratization of information and, you know, an Oxford Don has the same access to information now that, that anyone does almost, but he or she knows how to use that information in the best possible way. And I guess if Nigel Toome was in his formative years now, what would you be saying? What would your advice to you be in terms of how to make the most of the all the abundance of opportunities that are coming down the track? That is a hard one. I think in terms of thinking about how you're going to be um, successful in this world, and that's maybe what I would be trying to help my younger self think through, a lot of the fundamentals don't change. You know, a lot of it is about having those core skills. You know, if you're in science and technology, you know, the maths is the language that you still need. All of that, I think, doesn't go away. It's really then, as you were saying with your Oxford Don analogy, it's having the tools to be able to take advantage of this new technology and the rapid rate of change that is going to come. You know, I think we all need to accept that you can't just learn once and that's it. You know, we're going to need to continue to adapt and change and evolve. And I think that is really the key. That's kind of been my career because I've been in the middle of this semiconductor revolution and Moore's law that has kind of grown up around me and this sort of massive change in the internet and mobile communications and, you know, all of these pieces. And it's just so much fun being part of that rapidly changing environment. And I think it's just going to continue. I think that's true. It's trying to put yourself in those information flows and be at the front of things. And like you say, going to the ballet at a young age must have been quite an experience to kind of see that world as well. And that's the great opportunity now as well as that people have access to all these information and, and can see these things, but it is about knowing where to go for it. Innovate, my view of it is innovation comes from seeing cross boundaries. It's seeing how a technology can solve a problem for a customer, or it's seeing how some new material can be applied to in some new and interesting way. And people who can do that tend to have both a deep understanding of the underlying fundamentals, but they have that sort of broader ability to see across those boundaries. And I think that's the piece that is important. You see a lot of people who have a superficial understanding, but they can't really work out what the solution is. And it's those people who can combine that broader understanding with the underlying skills who can really make a massive difference. I think that's a very good point. And that is so much of where innovation comes from is that cross-pollination of ideas and so on. Going against the grain, there's been a theory with the pandemic that we've seen five years of change within the space of a few months and so on. But I actually think the long-term innovation of this, it could be hampered because actually you haven't had the cross-pollination between companies as much as you would normally see. We'll come on to the government in a moment, but I was also just keen to touch on Bristol and the fact that there are three universities there. And I just wondered if you could Explain the advantages of Bristol and why you partly set up a company there. We set up there because there is a very strong talent pool of engineers who know how to design microprocessors, which interestingly does go back many years ago. The UK government helped to fund a business called Inmos that ended up designing microprocessors. It became part of ST Microelectronics and trained a whole generation of engineers in the real key underlying skills. And we still take from that talent pool and we're training next generations of people around that. Bristol has a really strong base of those technical skills. It has a great base of software skills. It has lots of media expertise. It's a great place to live in the Southwest. People really like it. It's a young, vibrant city. I think it's a really 
good spot for growing and building a business like Graphcore. It's not down the road from, you know, some of these big tech companies that are hoovering up everybody left, right and centre. So we are an attractive option for people both to move to Bristol for and also people in Bristol to come and, and want to work for us as well. We talked about back at the London Tech Week in 2019, some of the challenges of growing a company in the UK as a whole, not just Bristol, but one of these being around access to capital markets and you know, you've taken funding from Sequoia and they flew to kind of see you, which is an incredible story. I also wondered what you thought of the, the government has just announced a review of listings on stock markets and so on. And I just wondered, I know that you've talked publicly before about your hope for Graphcore being that you'll be able to list on public markets at, at some point. I wonder whether that, that review would be more likely the kind of dual structure that they've floated in that, whether that would make you more likely to float in the UK. Obviously, we remain open to think about where and what would be the right market for us. You know, it's about access to capital and London is a great place for that. New York is a great place for that. What has been proposed by the Jonathan Hill report is all incredibly positive. The dual class piece, you know, that affects some companies. I'm not hung up about that piece per se. I think it's more about you know some of the issues around being able to have access to have the right conversations with investors you know some of the thinking around this whole phenomenon with SPACs at the moment special purpose acquisition companies which have become a big feature of scaling businesses in the US you know changing the rules to allow for those I think is important as well to be able to support growing companies and giving them the right access to capital and all of those things seem to be covered in the report so I think it's just a question of time. How quickly does it get rolled out? Does it actually end up being enacted in the way that it was described in the report? That will be a challenge how quickly government can move on it. We do have a lot of politicians and cabinet ministers listening to this show. If you could give them some advice and some pearls of wisdom, what would it be for the future? Because it's a huge moment for the country post-Brexit, post-COVID, and the policy areas, as you've alluded to previously, can be so important in terms of business growth. What would you be saying to them? It's interesting. I've been thinking a little bit about this, actually. I've had some conversations with a few interesting people along these lines. You need to be careful you don't fall into a trap of trying to react to things because then it becomes very difficult to make the right decisions and even involve the right people in those decisions because of the conflict of interest, because you end up doing tactical decision-making all the time. I think what government needs to think through is that longer-term strategic thinking, putting those frameworks in place that provide a direction that hopefully subsequent governments would follow because they're just sensibly thought through. And in those strategic conversations and in those strategic frameworks, you can involve people with the right skills because they're not making tactical decisions where they might have a conflict of interest. They're much more driven around you know, doing the right thing. So I think it's thinking about putting those strategic frameworks in place and some of those sort of big challenge pieces. And I don't know, people always look back to the moonshot stuff, you know, it's where the phrase moonshot comes from back in the 60s when America said they were going to put a man on the moon and Silicon Valley came out of that really for in the US. You pulled together academics and industry to solve some of the difficult problems. And I'm not suggesting that we should go put a man on the moon or anything, but it's about having those strategic frameworks and some of those moonshot approaches, perhaps around renewable energies, perhaps around quantum computing, around AI. And we build some strategic frameworks that allow us to create the right talent base, for example, around some of those issues. Thanks, Nigel. That was such a 
interesting answer on that. I just wondered for somebody that wanted to understand the future and the potential impacts that were coming down the line, is there a book that you would particularly recommend reading or even a podcast series or, or somewhere where people can go and understand more about what the future holds? Oh gosh, I don't know if I've got a great book. Uh, most of the futurist books I read, I find full of nonsense, to be honest. The thing I'm reading at the moment, actually, is going completely in the other direction. I'm reading about history quite a lot, because I think we learn quite a lot from history. And the book I've found fascinating recently was a book by Michael Woods called A History of China, and understanding China and where China comes from and the different evolution now, I think is really interesting in this sort of geopolitical world that we live in. You're trying to put yourself in their shoes and understand their history, which is not something I ever learned at school. And it's fascinating when you look at that, actually. Try and see things a bit more from their perspective. You get a much better understanding of where they are, perhaps why they're doing some of the things they are or approaching problems in, in the way that they do. So I've found that to be a really interesting thing. Well, that is fascinating. I will check that out. And it is interesting that we are at this geopolitical moment. It feels in terms of the world is reorientating itself, the rise against populism and all these things that perhaps started in 2016 and have shifted. You have an office in Beijing as well. What are the opportunities of more UK companies looking east? Yeah, we tend to have largely looked towards the west and east in terms of, of the EU, but there is an amazing opportunity as the world becomes more democratised, more open. What are the big opportunities you see engaging with Asia? Through the whole Brexit process, we wanted to have sovereignty. We need to be careful that we don't swap a link to the EU with just a, a link to the US. And we've somehow got to carve out a role, I think, as UK, as being able to look both East and West and have great relationships with North America, have great relationships with Europe, and also have great relationships into Asia. And that's probably one of the big opportunities we have around Brexit and not something that, that we should waste. I mean, I am quite optimistic on this side of things because I think if you look at the regulatory blocks in the world, you've got North America, you've got China, and you've got the EU. And the challenge when you're competing with these areas is the velocity of capital is enormous in the US, as we've talked about. It'd be difficult to challenge that. China is a very big market size. And again, we won't be able to compete with that. But there is an opportunity, I think, for the UK, because even the most ardent supporter of the European Union would admit to it not being a fleet of foot institution having to get 27 people to agree to things, is that actually the UK can be a trusted partner for all of those places, given our history and so on. And I think that is where the opportunity lies in Brexit in terms of the ability to be quicker with regulatory innovation could be a massive opportunity if we can take hold of it. It's going to be a muscle strength that as a country and as a system that we're going to have to learn to develop again. But I think it's a really big opportunity. You kind of look at what happens in fintech over the last 10 years, and I think that's a big opportunity that could be replicated in lots of different sectors where low-level regulation really helped sectors flourish early. I think the counter to what you just said, look at what's happened recently around communications infrastructure, 5G infrastructure, and we as the UK do a security review and decide that it's okay to have Huawei equipment at the antenna end, at the radio head end in our 5G networks. And then the US says, no, we don't want you to do that. And we change. 
we've got to find a way to create not just national sovereignty, but digital sovereignty as well. And, you know, it's going to be a difficult path to walk. I agree with you. There's a huge opportunity there, but it's also quite a challenge because you're then quite lonely if you're not careful trying to tread that path. I agree. Hopefully we can do this in person later in the year at some stage. That would be great. We, we could almost, we can probably do an entire episode on kind of digital sovereignty versus national sovereignty. Thanks so much for coming on. That's been a really great session and I hope it's given lots of inspiration to people in their careers about some of the amazing companies that we have in the UK. So thanks very much for coming on, Nigel. Thank you, Jimmy. That was great. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode, when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.